an 8-bit Rocket Studios production. I've all sorts of ideas for episodes of Into the Vertical Blank, but I just haven't been able to get anything off the ground. I have all kinds of ideas for videos too that I've been trying to make, but I have not been home. I've been in hotels for the last three weeks. I'm oh man! Home. So there's a few news items that well, I wanted to go over really quick. Let's introduce um, the episode first. Okay, this so, episode is called Season Four, Episode Seven. A Joyous Noise, Atari, and the Pokey Chip. And we'll explain that, uh, what it means all throughout this episode. But let's first, let's get into a little bit of news update. Sure. One of my favorite podcasts is the Retro Hour, which Me is a too. UK podcast. It's just phenomenal. And they, they cover all sorts of stuff. They had an interview with Gary Kitchen last week but i didn't know about this because i don't really haunt the atari age message boards for the jaguar much but it looks like there's a brand new full motion video jaguar game coming out that's being released i don't even know if it's interactive but i know it's the at least the full motion video portions of a game that was developed for the jaguar back in the 90s is coming out so there'll be a brand new jaguar game on the jaguar cd uh, one of them is a jaguar fan um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah, I want to the Jaguar. Those are cool guys. I, I hear I, them making a little bit of fun of it, but it's because it, it probably is poor quality, right? And they're probably right. Yeah. Well, um, one of the guys is an Amiga fan and doesn't like the ST either, but we've dealt with that. Our well, lives. I mean, that's, an, that's, I mean, when if you had an Amiga at the time that he had an Amiga, which was like 1994, you wouldn't even know when ST existed. ST was like a general purpose computer that happened to play games. And they were, just, yeah, I know. Amiga was a game computer, but they did. On the latest episode, they did my uh, Bellevue store. Oh, and, they did. Uh, and they oh, that was yours. Yeah, they said enter the vertical blank. I, on the latest one. On the really? latest one. Yeah, the latest one. The one that just came out Thursday. They mentioned the Bellevue store. They said, "Oh, this is from the guys in, in the vertical blank." Have you heard of this podcast? They said, "No, of course they haven't," because you know, uh, and because we're an Atari <laughs> podcast. But then uh, I said a little thing to tell them who we were. But they they talked all about the Bellevue store and the stuff we got and how how cool that that the stores are in the U.S. because they have all kinds of like really like older Atari and Commodore stuff that they just don't see there. Oh, um, I just I actually didn't get to that. That's a good good job, Jeff. No, I you didn't, didn't get set to that. that in. That's really cool. Yeah, 
Um, and so, um, and then, yeah, no, I love that show. And this time that I forget who they talked to, uh, um, but they always have to a guy who, who worked on, um, jungle strike um, oh. for, um, Soviet strike and, yes. and nuclear strike for he the worked, PS one. Yeah. He actually worked on all the, he was a movie, he was a movie guy and, um, he worked on all kinds of stuff. He worked on like the, a lot of cartoons in the, in the eighties. And it just was a great, interview. every one of their episodes is a great interview. The fact that they don't know anything about the Atari ST and one of them doesn't like it is not, not a big deal. They no. can talk about other Atari stuff, but I mean, they're just, they're kind of. Well, and their, their interviewers, their interviews are just across the board. Great. Like with yeah. the, they, they just interrupt sorts of people, they, but um, they're most okay, likely children of the nineties, not necessarily children of the eighties. So it's like, they don't have a huge history with the really, really old stuff like we do. But um, I still think that, I mean, whatever the show is fantastic. So, so I got this book for father's day that I didn't know existed press reset by Jason Schreier. I think that's his name. His last book was called blood, sweat, pixels. And he writes these, they're, they're essays, but interviews, like histories of modern game development, blood, so blood, sweat, and pixels was. But in those stories of development, I discovered the game called Pillars of Eternity, and I went and played it, and it was amazing. And so his books do double duty. Both they are great histories, but they also introduce games that I never heard of before, modern PC games. And this book, though, his second book takes on uh, AAA game studios and how, like, when studios shut down what happens to people and it really makes triple a game development sound like a horror show like a horror show yeah also great about it is he kind of picks one studio he picks uh who's the guy who did uh deus ex or or system shock oh my god I can't, uh, specter yeah so he kind of starts with warren specter and so it's a little bit about ultimate a little bit about warren specter working at origin but then the book sort of every time a studio ends he kind of brings up a story related to that studio. Oh. And so the whole book is sort of an interrelated web of people working at all these different game studios that end up horrific stories of the shutdown. But one of them called Mythic was working on a game called Ultima Forever, which is a modernized version of Quest for the Avatar. So Ultima 4. So in our last episode, we talked about why hasn't EA brought it back? There's a very good reason. Back in the turn of 2010, EA had all these studios that were working working on updated versions of Dungeon Keeper. Oh, wow. um, Mythic was actually working on a couple developers there had developed an updated version of Desert Strike. They're working on Ultima. All these people who've been working there who wanted to go back, do the games of their youth and updating stuff. And then iOS came around and almost all of them either were canceled or got turned into uh, microtransacting games. And Ultima Forever was originally Ultima 4 redo that turned into a microtransaction iOS game that just died so that's the answer ea has done it they're sitting all this stuff but really they can't figure out a way to make those games profitable in the model that's required for them now to make money i'll tell you that's a, the problem. Little, a little story about um ea just really quickly so on friday we scrambled to get you know our house painted and fixed up so they could take pictures to, to list it and the um the woman who came over she 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 was relatively young she knows something about eas or her boyfriend or something is in the game industry and she mentioned some electronic arts and, and ryan said electronic arts they want to put ads in games that you purchase now and um i thought well <laughs> Like that is, he saw this is the, aren't they the worst company ever? And I'm like, they used to be the best. And now well, just they have the been worst. voted the worst company in, in, in the world. I know. Several so times, but. he's like in games, $60 games you purchase, they want to do ads. And it's like, yeah, because the game probably cost them 
a hundred million dollars to make now, but or more or more. But still, I mean, if you're only doing two <laughs> games a year, you're doing FIFA and you're doing Madden or whatever they do. You know, they do more than that. And, and one of those Call of Duty or whatever. I, yeah. I don't know which one. I think that's Activision, and theirs is. Well, I don't know. I don't know anymore. I don't know. It doesn't yeah. matter. I they mean, all they're all the same. Game. The Activision and I mean, they're just uh, they're, company, they're basically the same company. The only cool thing about that is that the two best American game companies from the '80s, their names are still around. Yeah, but they that but they're junk, and the best American hardware company for video games, and I, I agree on um, computers except for Commodore's Amiga, right? Because the eight hundred four hundred eight hundred and those um, are still around, but they're a shell of themselves also. But the Japanese ones are still around, and they're the same, they're kicking ass, right? So yeah, I like Nintendo. So the, it, but it's just like everything. Amer- I'm not going to get too political here at all. But I expect just like all the other American things, where like we are more about service and not product and eventually like all these companies turn into service services yeah i know not product and so they're more about like advertising and and at ad places to put your ads and anyway so i have heard some things about the atari vcs that it's out now and that it's getting you know people that i see on my twitter timeline are like mr atari and stuff are talking about how how great and well, Mr. Atari, I think, is a is a plant of someone who works at Atari. But, it, but it's it interesting is. to see. Maybe not. But, Maybe not. I'll, um, I'll, but I'll, it's I'll, just th- enthusiastic. I, I see him, too. Um, but I think, ultimately, the problem with the VCS is that they needed exclusive games, and, and there isn't much. There will be a couple, but the problem with exclusive games is you need to have an install base for a developer to want to make an exclusive game. It's, a, it's getting it's a, there, though. Well, yeah. the VCS No, is it's available. not getting there. It's not. I'm, I'm not saying no, it's getting no, no, there. No, no, no. It's not. It's not at all. There's oh. how can you only sell? How can you have twenty thousand units and expect that a developer is going to put an exclusive game on there? And then God, that's not then, what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying about getting there. What I meant was the VCS is in stores. Hopefully, it'll get somewhere where it means something. You never know, right? But you're right. No, you can if you only have a, a small I think. Basement. I think it's a mistake. I, I, I really think they should have concentrated on uh, a brand new version of Atari Vault with more games yeah, why and, not? and why wasn't more multiplayer did, and just done a better way. Why just is the not, Atari Vault the same, that they get the same one that we've had for four years? I know. So anyway, that book, though, uh, Press Reset is really good. And I'd suggest you... You take a look at it but what, what it got me thinking about was that we um i mean we had dreams of being in the game industry back in right 1983 1984 and when we got our atari 800 we started programming it we learned to program we learned to make music and and images and pinball machines and stuff and then we sold it and which was not a bad thing we needed to do it but we kind of got rid of all the stuff that we made with it yeah that was bad and idea. forever that has just been you know, has has kind of made me uh, really sad. But, but I know I told you about this, but a couple weeks ago, uh, I found one relic that I know we had those days. And I have a story about it that I want to play right now. All right, let's hear that story, Steve. A Joyous Noise, Part 1, The Biggest Mistake When you are a kid, everything happens in the present. There is no time to think about the future and what your actions one day might mean 40 years later. You just do what you can to survive. In 1986, 
Jeff and I were literally salivating over the photos and descriptions of Atari ST computers in enthusiast magazines like Antic and Analog. We'd spent three full years with our Atari 800, learning to program, to love games, and to realize our future lie in the technology world. But in 1986, the Atari 8-bit line was not getting any younger, and neither were we. At 16 years old, we were desperate to figure out our future, and that future appeared to be in the new 16-bit computers from Atari. To afford a 520ST, we had to take some drastic action. Our dad, who scored us the Atari 800 for Christmas 1983, was no longer flush with cash from working overtime at Hughes Aircraft. In fact, things had gotten pretty tight financially around our house. We also were no longer allowed to bring friends to sleep over because the bathroom was in such disrepair it could hardly be used. And my mom was embarrassed because she was sleeping on the couch away from our dad as their relationship had soured. Our sister Carol had moved out and was living in North Hollywood, singing in various rock bands and going to school for cosmetology. And our other sister Mars was in a deep depression, having divorced her husband just a few months after getting married. They had dated for nearly 10 years, ever since high school, but life had changed and they had grown apart. My brother and I were trying to navigate it all, and to us, the way out felt the same as it always felt. Computers. But we couldn't stay stagnant. We had to move on, and so we made the decision to sell our beloved Atari 800 to raise cash for an Atari ST. But we also made a huge mistake that would haunt us for many years to come. In the flurry of putting ads in the recycler and on BBS systems to sell our stuff, we forgot one thing. We had created many, many files with our Atari 800 that we might want to see again in the future. But like I said, we were kids living in the present, desperate to shape our own future, but with no idea what it would feel like once we got there. So, in that time, we sold everything so we could scrape together every last dollar possible to buy a 520 Atari ST. And by everything, I mean every disc with every program we ever wrote in Atari Basic, every pinball machine we made with Pinball Construction Set, and every drawing we had made with the Koala Art Tablet. Everything. It was thrilling to see the money roll in and count up towards our goal of $600 for an Atari ST. In those moments, I did not care about all the work we put into our Atari 800 for three years. I was living in the present. The Atari 800 was old. The Atari ST was new. Life was moving on. And it was a catalyst to the future. The examples around our house of people and things from bathrooms to failed marriages and divorces showed us the danger of what happens when people fail to move on. When depression, lack of motivation, and catalyst plus anxiety lead to an empty existence. Selling the Atari 800 to get an Atari ST became then a great life lesson for us. We made a decision to move on to the next level, but at the same time, it had a terrible downside that I was not prepared to consider in 1986. The lesson was this. Once your work is gone, it's gone. No one is going to save it for you. The people we sold our computer equipment to had no connection to it. They probably erased our floppy disk so they could save their own work or make backup copies. The connection to our basic programs and files was ours alone, and we gave it up too quickly. Everything we created in our most innocent and most formative years with our computer was gone forever with no 
possible way to get it back or even ever see it again. It was not until the 1990s when I realized our mistake, but it was far too late then. I've searched for more than 20 years now to find just one file we created back then. We uploaded at least a half dozen basic games to BBS systems, including one called Price Right, P-R-C-E-R-G-H-T dot bass. I think that's what it was named anyway. A version of a game from the game show The Price is Right. We also uploaded some reskin games from the book Dr. C. Wacko's Miracle Guide, a check writing program, some music programs that use various controllers as instruments, plus a ton of pinball games made with pinball construction set. I've never seen any inkling of any of them, no matter how far and wide I've searched. We tell kids these days to be careful because everything they do online will be saved forever. But there was a time in the not-too-distant past that the opposite was true. If you didn't purposefully save and archive everything, there was a damn good chance you may never see it or hear it again. Part 2. Digging Out of What's Left Behind Jeff and I have spent the last four years digging out from what was left behind after 1986. While the decision to sell our Atari 800 to buy an Atari ST was our catalyst to the future, my mom, my dad, my sister Mars never really advanced beyond that same year. For nearly 30 years, they all lived together in our family home, and almost to the person, never got rid of anything. The house, the garage, the backyard, the mother-in-law unit, the driveway, the back backyard, a storage shed, was subsequently filled and forgotten with the derritus of a life filled with a series of broken dreams. As much as Jeff and I both used our enthusiasm for computers to make our way in the world by finishing college, getting jobs, moving out, getting married, having kids, buying houses, etc. They were all stuck in suspended animation with every inch forward followed by a foot in retreat. At the same time, our little childhood home fell further and further into disrepair with every passing year. Whatever time and money Jeff and I could spare went into helping them keep the house from being a complete disaster, but it was like blowing into the wind. It was just too much for us to fix while trying to raise families of our own. So the piles piled up into a hoard while my mom, dad, and Mars couldn't see the forest for the trees. When my dad passed away in 2011, my mom and sister dug in their heels even stronger and it was not until 2017 when my mom got sick that we were able to finally make any solid effort to turn things around. We had to sell our childhood home so my mom could get the care she needed, but it was too late. Instead of the planned move to get her to a place where she could see the ocean in her final days, we gave her a proper funeral and then instead spent weeks sifting through the hoard to move out while Mars watched on with disdain and indifference. After 30 years, she still didn't understand why things needed to change. Even after discarding at least four tons of trash, the remaining items still filled two enormous storage units and a little house that Mars rented. Soon after, in 2018, we started this podcast as a way to heal ourselves from, honestly, 30 years of trauma dealing with our parents and sister, trying to remember the good times with Atari instead of the terrible stuff in between. In the three years since, we continually pared down and organized the remains of the Horde, trying to get Mars and a new place into a space where she could thrive. But we were too late with that, too. She was never able to move on beyond 1986. She never got her Atari ST moment, where the catalyst of the future was laid bare for her to see. Instead, she passed away in April of this year, clinging as tightly to the past as ever, still with 60-odd years of her own belongings left for us to sort through and figure out. While packing Mars' stuff, 
we found a trove of her music memorabilia that she collected in the late 70s. Most of it LA punk rock flyers, 7-inch singles, ticket stubs, magazines, etc. It's an amazing archive that she had not touched for more than 40 years. It was hard for me not to put those musical findings into the context of my relationship with Mars. It was in 1983 when Mars, tired of hearing her little brothers play breakdancing music in their bedroom, made a mixtape cassette for Jeff and I to help us understand her music. The tape included a virtual history lesson of glam, punk, and new wave. It was life-changing for me, and the music she provided became the groundwork for my love of music in the ensuing years. I've been looking for that cassette for a long time now, and seeing Mari's archive of music made me want to find it even more. So a couple weeks ago, I went into an old box I have in my own closet that holds some of my old memorabilia and found a bunch of unmarked cassette tapes I've saved from my childhood. I've been meaning to listen to them anyway, and this was my chance. While I did not find Mars' mixtape, I did find something very curious. A tape from 1984 I had not recalled ever recording. In fact, the tape was filled with guitar playing I recorded several years later, so it's only by chance that this audio recording still exists and was not taped over. On the tape, I found absolute proof that we did in fact have an Atari 800 computer in 1984, and we did write programs for it, and we did create things. What I found was this piece of audio about two minutes and 41 seconds of us using one of the basic programs we wrote in 1984, a four-voice music synthesizer for playing pokey music with the four controller ports of the Atari 800. Here it is. Sounds from joystick number two. sounds from paddle number one. I know, it doesn't sound like much. Just a couple of kids making noises with their Atari in 1984. But I can see the whole thing in my mind now. The Your Atari computer book sitting open on our computer desk. The blue screen with white text of an Atari basic program listed. The basic code with a while loop that listens for interrupts from the joysticks and the paddles. The four voices of the Atari pokey chip being used simultaneously to create what I can only describe as a joyous noise. The realistic cassette player, the same one that not too long before was used to play Starpath Supercharger games on our Atari 2600, queued up with a C60 audio tape inside, purchased at Target. Jeff typing run on the Atari keyboard and hitting enter, me pressing record and play on the cassette player as I introduced what we were doing, and then it all started. 
the rest is on the audio tape. It's not exactly the same thing as having one of those long lost computer programs to look at, but maybe it's better. We didn't ever have a video camera in our house growing up. And while my dad did have an eight millimeter movie camera from the sixties, it did not record sound. That means these few random audio tapes probably hold the only record of what it was like to exist in our house in the eighties. And this one recording shows better than anything else what it was like for us to finally discover programming our own computer for the first time in early 1984 and to enjoy the final few months of Atari Inc.'s existence until they disappeared just a few months later. In a sense, it's recorded proof of the existence of the vertical blank. Part three, the future. Let me let you into a little secret. This podcast is not really about Atari. Well, it is, but it's about more too. This podcast is really about coping with loss. We started just after our mom died. It's filled with stories about our dad, and now our sister Mars is beginning to show up at regular intervals. The vertical blank exists because our deep memories of the joy Atari brought are inextricably tied to the feelings of loss that surrounds it. Lost dreams of working for Atari, lost chances that went away when they went out of business, a lost era that has been paved over and mostly forgotten, and the loss of our original family who was part and parcel of it. But there's another side to that loss. The indescribable joy that nostalgia can bring to help ease the pain. Hearing that audio tape was like a revelation. It made everything seem real again. I will never see my discs or pictures or play my little basic games or see the electronic birthday cards we made for our parents, but I do know for a solid fact that that era actually existed and I was part of it. It's right there on tape. And while I've been mad at myself since the 90s for selling our Atari 800 in 1986, it's probably the one watershed moment that stands above all others in my childhood. My brother and I sacrificed our first love, the Atari 800, for the future. The Atari ST helped us get through the rest of high school, especially journalism and computer classes. Then we sold it and upgraded to a 1040 ST to get through college. We took notes on it. We wrote papers. We made video titles, wrote my first published magazine article on it, made our first games, wrote programs for class, and played games to make the lonely times go by faster. But at the same time, my parents and sister never moved on. They lived in that same house stuffed with memories, a rotting bathroom, and third-hand furniture for the next 30 years. They stored their treasures hidden away in the attic, the garage, and that shed, waiting for what? The time in the future when they would need them most? They never got their Atari ST moment, when they could see the light of the future and strive for it. They continued to live only in the present until there was no present any longer. All three of them waited for life to come to them, and it never arrived. So I don't regret selling my Atari 800 in 1986. I wish it was not the only option, but given the other options, it was the best choice. And it taught me a great lesson. When you are at those points where you have to make tough decisions, don't make a bad choice upon good. There was no reason to get rid of our work and personal discs when we sold our Atari. We should have saved the gems and got rid of everything else. I've since taken that lesson to heart. I pretty much saved every file I've ever created now. I've been through dozens of computers since then. Nearly all the computers are gone, but my work and files, they still remain with me. And all this brings up another question. How can I be mad at my mom and dad and sister for not throwing away anything for 30 years if I myself discovered a personal treasure by doing exactly that, not throwing away a cassette I've kept for just as long. Didn't I throw away my Atari 800 files and that caused this whole issue in the first place? And as a collector of Atari, 
Are I not just doing the same thing as them in a different way, storing treasures in boxes and storage so that I can one day theoretically enjoy them? I'm going to have to think more on this, but I imagine it all comes down to moderation. I will tell myself to be more careful about what I keep and what I throw away to make sure I don't cause myself and my family more emotional pain in the future. Furthermore, some people might say, hey, you have a podcast about Atari. Are you not always living in the past too? And my answer is this. The past created this future. The exploration of loss helps me understand what to do next. It's not about living in the past. It's about using the lessons from the past to live tomorrow. And it's also about joy. The joy of discovering forgotten memories and nuances like that cassette tape. Something I totally forgotten existed. It's something that took me right back to the past like nothing else I can imagine. It's about, yes, that joyous noise. The pokey computer program captured forever in audio form, highlighting the exact moment when anything seemed possible. It's the joyous noise of kids discovering their future. All right. Hey, so what did you think of that story, Joe? Well, that was an incredible story, Steve. And um, a lot of it rings like, not just a lot of it, but you know, 99% of it rings, of course, true for me also. <laughs> one, thing, <laughs> one thing I think that it's good to realize is that because we're here and we can realize the fact that you can't take it with you, but you also can't store your treasures away so no one can see them is that need to take them out and use them and that's the whole reason behind unbox it and play it that's you know if you have it display it i know i'm kind of not trying to rap and make a rhyme but <laughs> unbox it and play it if you have it display it that's all i have to say so um anyway i do think that started this whole thing sort of in a grieving period and we continue to, to do it because grieving periods don't end. And what <laughs> happens is that unfortunately, unfortunately they don't end and, and more have come, but there are lots of good times in between during those, there's all kinds of fun stuff to do. For instance, you know, I've been going through some really interesting Atari ST magazine discs from an Atari ST user in Atari world. I found just say Atari ST user. I found four or five games and descriptions of things that Marco doesn't have an Atari Mania. And I said really? to him recently, just over last week, I continue to go through them because there's things he doesn't have. There's versions he doesn't have. There's things that are up there that you can still find, right? So there's still a treasure hunt to happen, even in things that you think are complete. Um, so, and anyway, I, I think the story is great. It said there's nothing in there that's not, un, that's not true, right? It's everything in that story is exactly the, painted a picture of exactly the way it was and is so, so i um i talked to tony law i sent that audio clip to tony longworth oh and you know i asked him hey tony you know I, and i cut it i actually cut up some elements of it and i said hey tony is there anything you can do with this to make a remix and he came back literally in three hours and was like dude I made a remix and so i want to play some of it for you That's and then awesome. you can we can talk about it because it's pretty amazing so here, here it goes Joystick. Joystick. 
Tony just went off there, didn't he? Is that <laughs> so? Was, so that that's was, just a little bit of it. We'll, that was we'll like play the joystick and brother two. Is that what he had in there too? It's, it's number two. two, number two. But number it, two. but he made it sound like something else, which is which is cool. So we'll play that whole thing, the whole thing at the end. That's just a little sample of the remix. But here's what I want to say: as I was going through those cassettes, I actually found a couple other little pieces of audio that I want to play that are fairly interesting so here's one that's called jeff atari bass okay let's hear it hello you have dialed the federal building in washington dc if you have business calling here music time bass playing by our good old jeff fulton on his atari computer get ready because here it comes the fastest talking best ever groovinest down this heavy metal bass you've ever heard in your life get ready here it comes with Jeff Holton on the Tiger Computer using Benson of any magazine. Thank you. Here you go. I have to say about that is there's a fine line between genius and stupidity. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't, I, I think, I don't, I think that was a base program. Like a, like so a, I, like, I typed it in for, we oh, typed it in and then we were, I think it was hitting the keys and not using the, um, the paddles. Oh, that. I'm sure that was hitting the keys. Was that like, was some program you found on in a magazine maybe. Yeah. And what would happen was I think um, I forget where he got it, but, I remember that you have two or three different octaves. And so I would play one in the lowest octave and then I'd play it like one or two higher. And that's about all the music theory I, I knew at the time. In fact, that's about oh, no. all the, that's about all the oh, music no, Jeff. theory I know now. Jeff, what? that's not the only music theory that you did because I have one more. Well, no, what I mean is that's all I knew. <laughs> I, that's all I knew about octaves and music theory. Yes, let's try another All right, one. this is... I mean, your last, your lost punk rock song, I think. Oh, no. <laughs> Ready? Yeah. Here it goes. So, when the dust is cleared, take. Darkness late at night, we all converged to a meeting of desperate plight. I wish you could go swamp for freedom. I'm fighting at the evil tension of way, all right. Plight, I wish you could give us more for freedom. I'm fighting at the evil tension of way, all right. Give us more for freedom. I'm fighting at the evil tension of way, all right. 
That's that's it. I have no idea what that is. Whatever it's called, it was. It's called oh. When the Dust is Cleared. And and I guess we were, I think it was still on the Atari 100. And we were yeah. using some other program that we thought we were that close to making techno music. Well, let's not call it music. But, but then we stopped. We didn't do it anymore. And I just wondered, like, why Plus, did we stop? None of it's good, admittedly. I can hear kernels of, like, yeah, that could be musical. I mean, it's just like, none of it's good. I mean, even this, even the other songs I found on the cassettes are, are terrible. But it doesn't mean they couldn't have been good at some point right. if we hadn't just stopped. <laughs> That's all. Let me read you, by the way, what Tony said about his remix. Okay, first, he says, I sent him the first one, and he wrote back to me, oh, these are great. I can see what I can do with them. Then he comes back, and he says, I love it, man. It's great when you discover stuff like this. Totally takes you back, I bet. I started setting up these samples and playing with them a bit, editing, tweaking, etc. I've got some weird, pokey, industrial thing going on. I'm liking it. I'll send you something when it progresses. And then this is not too long later, Okay, I've got a remix of those samples. In fact, there are two versions, one with voice samples and one without. I've used effects in these tracks, but no other instruments, just the samples. It was fun. So, and then he said, um, all I did was clean up the samples a bit. I balanced them. I added some additional effects like reverb and delay to brighten them. And then he said, with those drums, I've still got the original drums playing quieter in the background to add atmosphere, but I cut out the bass drum, the snare, and two other noises from those samples and mapped them onto electronic dump drum kit so i could play myself basically <laughs> pokey sounds on a real electronic drum kit it was fun so yeah, yeah that's that, that was his, his process but let's talk about the pokey because obviously all those the sounds and stuff uh and the fact that there were four voices were made possible by the pokey chip which which stands for pots and keys right to read the the paddle and the keyboard and it also and, uh, happened to have sound in it too which is kind of interesting but yeah. exactly start by reading that wikipedia article about the pokey that we've got i mean anybody could read wikipedia but let's just let's just it. go through it yeah. yeah so the pot keyboard integrated circuit pokey is a digital io chip designed for the atari 8-bit family of home computers and found in the atari arcade games of the 80s Pokey combines functions for sampling potentiometers such as game paddles and scan matrices of switches such as a computer keyboard as well as sound generation. It produces four voices of distinctive square wave sound, either as clear tones or modified with a number of distortion settings. And I've used, I have a uh, little 7800 demo program that we can put up with this that allows you to load it into 7800 emulator and play with the four voices and all the different sounds on it. Yeah, that's an awesome, that's awesome. That's awesome demo you made. So we'll put that up as part of this. Pokey chips are used for audio in many arcade games, including Centipede, Missile Command, Asteroids Deluxe, and Gauntlet. Some of Atari's arcade systems use multi-core versions with two or four Pokies in a single package for more sound voices. The Atari 7800 console allows a game cartridge to contain a Pokey, providing better sound than the system's audio chip. <clears throat> Only two licensed games made use of this, the ports of Ballblazer and Commando. So then we've got, actually, I wrote a little history about how the Atari 100 started being built. I don't think we've read this yet, but it includes we a little bit about We have done part Pokey. of this in the, um, in our, but we should, do, we should go back and do this anyway. So we may have done Yeah, let's go back and do this. This is, this is uh, 1978, the VCS follow-up to Calling Candy. 
When work started on the Atari VCS in 1977, the engineering team, Joe DeCur, Jay Miner, and Steve Mayer were tasked to create a machine that could both follow up the VCS and double as an entry in the burgeoning personal computer market. Now, that actually isn't true because they started not with that idea, whatever. Um, this is a quote from Joe DeCur. The follow-up had to support 1978 vintage arcade games. We knew we would need to leapfrog the 2600 before anybody else did. It also had to support home computer character and mad graphics we saw the apple II commodore radio shack appliance machines coming so so joe kind of thinks that it could have been a computer too at the beginning i right. guess from that quote the project was soon split into two separate projects dubbed colleen and candy after two particularly attractive secretaries later renamed the atari 800 and 400 now, we don't know if that's actually true or not. yeah i don't know if that's true either some people say it is some people not colleen was to be the full-fledged computer while candy was more suited as the game machine follow-up to the 2600 both were based on the same basic hardware design with four separate silicon chips that handle different parts of the computer's operation. The 6502 CPU running at 1.8 megahertz, the Antic Display microprocessor, the CTI graphics chip that one day would be the GTI graphics chip, and the Pokey sound chip. The power of these multiple processors pushed the Atari 8-bit computers far beyond that of VCS. And I just want to say also made it like the most spectacular computer until, uh, you know, the mid 80s. This is another quote from Joe DeCur. I think the 6502 was the best 8-bit processor at the time. It was architecturally superior to the 8080. It was architecturally superior to the 6800. I think it's still better than the Z80. To continue, Jay Miner, as system architect, led a group that included Joe DeCur, George McLeod, Francois, Michel, that designed the Antic microprocessor for processing display information and the CTI graphics chip to put it on the screen. It's a very potent combination giving Colleen and Candy the most sophisticated graphics for any microcomputer at the time. The Antic took the graphics information in the form of display lists. Display list interrupts allow the screen to be cut horizontally into multiple parts, allowing for almost limitless display options. These instructions were processed and displayed one by one by multiple graphics modes in the CTIA, again, later GTIA. This design also included hardware-based sprites for creating games, a character set that could be completely redefined in code, and per-line fine scrolling. In some systems, the scrolling is like four lines at a time, so not like eight. Yeah, or late. In terms of sheer horsepower, the graphics capabilities of these new machines made the output of the TIA chip in the VCS look primitive. After the 6502, Antic, and CTA, the four chip design was the Pokey. Pokey was a dedicated sound processor started by the core team and finished by Doug Neubauer. Doug Neubauer, Doug Neubauer, Neubauer, who shows up in every single ep episode now as the programmer for um, for Star Raiders. Here's Doug Neubauer. The Atari 800's architecture evolved as an upgrade of the 2600, conceived primarily by Steve Mayer, Joe DeCur, and Jay Miner before I arrived at Atari. The original plan for the Pokey chip called for a keyboard interface, audio, and paddle controllers. To continue, the chip had four distinct sound channels with the ability to set volume, frequency, and waveform per channel. This gave Colleen and Candy's sound production capabilities far beyond the speaker beeps of most personal computers. The machines were designed to work on regular television sets at, as it was not anticipated that consumers Atari would be targeting would have dedicated computer monitors, which were very expensive. This meant productivity applications such as word processors would be limited to 40 characters across the screen. Joe DeCur again. We said, given that we want to do personal productivity, how many characters can we get on the screen? The physics, if you drive a home TV, you're stuck with the upper limit of the color clock, which is 3.58 megahertz. So that's your top clock rate. So the best you can do is 40 characters across or 160 pixels across. That's the best you can do. 
That's from Jodeker. Limitations would come back to haunt Atari when their computers were seen as toys that could not produce a professional 80-column output. As the hardware was being finalized, Atari started working on the software required to get the computers up and running. After announcing late 1978 that the new computer systems would be on display at the January CES in 1979, the scramble was on to write software that would run on them. This is Alan Miller. Atari had been designing a personal computer for a couple of years and had a, a group of programmers working on the OS for a long time. Atari then pre-announced that the computers debut at the January 1979 CES. Okay, to continue, to meet that date, Atari tapped some of their best programmers from the VCS team, including Alan Miller, Larry Kaplan, Bob Whitehead, and David Crane. Ah, uh, hey, you know, the four horsemen of Atari's apocalypse, too. Exactly. Guys who started Activision and David Crane. So that kind of brings us back to episode, I don't know, what was it, one or two or three of the season where we interviewed David Crane and we actually asked him about this to work on the operating system while outsourcing the job of creating a version of basic language for their computers. This is from David Crane. There's a period at Atari when there were no games coming from Larry Kaplan, Alan Miller, Bob Whitehead, and myself. As the most senior designers at Atari were tasked with creating the 800 operating system. This group plus two others wrote the entire operating system in about eight months. A funny story from this time that Al Miller likes to tell has to do with the Atari basic cartridge that was to ship with the system. Atari had contracted with a young brat, I, I added this, a young programmer named Bill Gates to modify a basic compiler that he had for another system to use on the Atari. After that project stalled for every year, Al was called upon to replace him with another developer. Al was the only person I know ever to have fired Bill Gates. I suspect that rather than work on Atari basic, Bill Gates was spending all his time on DOS for IBM. Probably not a bad career choice for him, don't you think? That's David Right. Anyway, <laughs> to finish up, the basic language was finished by SMI Corporation in time for CES and was as was the internally developed operating system. Here's Alan Miller again. I'm very proud of the OS we created for the Atari 400-800. It's similar in complexity to QDOS, the OS that Microsoft licensed a couple years from Seattle Computer Products and renamed it MS-DOS for the IBM personal computers. However, the Atari OS was much better designed in terms of its user friendliness and had a much richer graphics subsystem and many fewer bugs. So that's the end of, so there's a little bit of information there about the Pokey. Let's talk about the actual hardware in the Pokey. Okay. okay. Pokey for audio had four semi-independent audio channels. The channels could be pre-configured as one of four 8-bit channels, two 16-bit channels, or one 16-bit channel and two 8-bit channels. Okay. Per channel, you could set volume, frequency, waveform, square wave or variable duty cycle or pseudo random noise. They could run at 15 kilohertz or 64 kilohertz. Two channels may be driven by CPU clock frequency and they had a high pass filter. There also was keyboard, they had high resolution audio timers. That's where they got the random number generator. They had eight IRQ interrupts, so that was two per channel and provided for a serial IO port. All of that made it incredibly flexible to create sound, drive paddles, and take other input, which is, you know, fantastic. fantastic yeah, I mean, I personally machine. remember playing with the Pokey and thinking it was amazing. And um, I remember even when the Atari 1200 came out, 1200 XL came out, they advertised their sound as having four voices. And I thought when they said voices, it meant actual 
multiple voices yeah, like you know because tro- i think war games had just come out it was 1983 and i think war, war games i think was 83 and you know the obviously war games had the talking computer and so i was like oh do they mean voices like it's going to have speech synthesis but of course the, the advertising really just meant the four channels of the pokey um well the pokey was used in yeah. many atari coin ops in fact many people don't know how many atari coin ops actually used the pokey for sound because it wasn't just revolutionary as a computer audio chip because it was revolutionary i mean we're talking the pokey being one of the first real solid sound chips for a computer and that's why the atari 8 bits were so revolutionary when they came out and also the pokey was in the 5200 obviously and in the xegs so all those systems use the pokey exclusively the 7800 didn't have one but you could put it in the cartridge like it said and but only commando and ball blazer used it although many now many homebrews use the pokey because you can either get them in flash carts or get them put into carts and it's just such better sound and you can actually do a pokey and tia sound at the same time and 700 basic you can use them both at the same yeah, time yeah so 700 basic usable time and in and, and many of my little demos i i have a pokey sound player that i've started building pokey music player it's very basic but you can start transcribing some basic piano roll songs to the pokey um and i have a few demos with that stuff in it but really I mean, you miss the fact that um you know, video games after the 7800, NES and SMS and everything afterwards, there's music playing almost throughout the entire games, right? And most of the video games before that did not have that. And that's one of the big changes, right? It's one of those nuances that sticks in the mind of people who who love Nintendo and everything. Yeah, there's cool music playing the whole time. And and so to to make the 7800 now feel like a modern, well, not modern, but you know what I mean. A modern meaning like after 1984, after after the crash kind of, you kind of need to figure out how to get music in the games. Because if you don't, it just, it just, they just sound, it's really sad and silent. There's like an empty, um, it's something empty about them. If there's, yeah, there's something empty about them. Right. Okay. But anyway, so the Pokey, the coin ops that the Pokey was using, I'm just going to read this list because it's pretty extensive. iRobot, Tomcat used two of them. Cloak and Dagger used two of them. Cloud9, a prototype, used two of them. Crystal Castles used two of them. Liberator used two of them. Quack, a 1982 prototype of the update from a game from the 70s, used two of them. The Return of the Jedi used four of them. Runaway, another prototype, used two of them. Tetris from Atari Games used two of them. Centipede used it. Tunnel Hunt, Tube Chase, and Vertigo, which are all basically the same game i think it's a prototype for atari but the the games are two same game for other companies use two of them millipede use two of them warlords and missile command use one black widow used two gravatar used two lunar battle another prototype used two major havoc used two quantum from gcc used two red baron used two space duel used two tempest used two the tempest tubes prototype used two tubin used it star wars used four Empire Strikes Back used four. Blastoids used two. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom used two. Marble Madness, two. Peter Packrat, two. Relief Pitcher, two. Road Blasters, two. Road Runner, two. Gauntlet, Gauntlet 2, 
Vindicators, 722, Accelerator, 2, APP, 2 of them, Championship Sprint, 2, Gremlins, 2, Paperboy, 2, and Super Sprint used them. Those are the, all the coin ups I could find. A lot of the later ones also used other chips as well, but had a Pokey in there as part of their audio system. So the Pokey created many of the sounds that people associate in the arcade, but don't realize that those sounds came from the Pokey audio chip. There's now an actual replacement chip out there because Pokey chips are becoming very, very rare, hard to find. It's called Pokey One. Basically, it's a pin-for-pin replacement for a Pokey chip that you can drop into old machines and new machines if you need it. Yeah, so yeah. this is from Chapter 7 of D-Ray Atari. This is mostly written by Chris Crawford, but also compiled from various other people at Atari at the time. Right. The Atari 400-800 home computers have extensive hardware sound capabilities. There are four independent controllable sound channels, all able to play simultaneously. Each channel has a frequency register determining the note and a control register regulating the volume and noise content. Several options allow you to insert high-pass filters, choose clock bases, set alternate modes of operation, and modify polynomial counters. That's pretty bitchin'. Yeah, there's lots more links to what the Pokey could do that we can add to our notes here. Um, but I think that a, a really good summary of what the Pokey do was written by Jim Chaparral in the October 1982 issue of Antics. So why don't you read that, Jeff? Um, many new Atari users have not realized the tremendous potential for music and sound hidden in their Atari computers. After all, a computer that can produce phaser noise or let you hear Indianapolis cars down the straightway by alternating a few simple commands should be capable of more. The following applies to the Atari 400 and 800 and is completely memory independent. Sound on the Atari is really made possible by the same technology that brought you handheld calculators. I'm talking about the integrated circuit. In this case, a special integrated circuit was designed and named Pokey, Pots and Keys. Every Atari built has a special chip and therefore can play music and generate interesting sounds. You might think of Pokey as a barbershop quartet, since there are four voices available. Each voice can be turned up loud or so low it can barely be heard. Each barber voice can sing 255 different notes or pitches. Some of these are so similar, your ear can't distinguish the differences. Among them are several that correspond to the musical scale. Each voice can be made to sound a pure tone as if it were to whistle the note or distort the tone. Distortion is one way of taking a familiar note and making it sound like a growl, hiss, or rumble. <laughs> Let me play you something do it so what i did was i wanted to have some song some pokey song playing to try to find something that's public domain that i could write and i, I decided i try to make a version of flight of the valkyries because it makes sense right as like it's like when the when the boss shows up so this is what it sounds like And that, that is pretty good for, for literally the limit of my abilities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it sounds pretty good for a, a good attempt. I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to get that far. It's really not in my wheelhouse to try to make music like that at all. 
but but the piano roll stuff that you showed me is really good because you just can can try to figure out the timing and the notes and then right. what it does is it, it doesn't play the notes straight it attacks them all so it raises the volume over the time that it needs to play it gives it a little synthesized sound at the same time which is way better than when it just played the notes straight it turns it on and off you know like without like fading or anything and it it, it just sounds really abrupt it's weird but it's interesting at the same time. <laughs> that's what that um what that pokey player does it's pretty cool so see yeah, the pokey player kind of uses the same thing to do it. It sounds good. I mean, I sort of just needs a little tuning there, but you did a lot of a lot of work to get that to work. Hey, everybody! It's Bill from Atari Bytes. Every week on my show, I play a great old game, then I read an original short story I wrote inspired by that game, loosely inspired. Okay, often completely different. Sometimes not even based on any sort of reality. In contrast, on Into the Vertical Blank which you're listening to right now, you get real stories about real people and what these games mean to them. So keep listening. So I just wanted to say that is, I mean, I know almost zero about music. I've always tried, but it's just really hard for me. So that's me trying to create a music player with knowing almost nothing. That was so pretty I'm good, still though, working for, on it. That's pretty good, though. I, I was trying to figure out how to use three of the voices and then one voice for sounds so that you could have like music and sounds at the same time because a lot of times they they used four voices for music and didn't put sound in it's like why can't you use one of the voices for some effect you can you can in some cases you can combine two of the voices to be a 16-bit channel instead of an 8-bit channel and and that gives you just a better range for the for the octaves um but that's what i did and anyway so i thought that it might be kind of cool if we play our favorite pokey songs Let's start with the original. The original best Pokey song. This game is one of the best games ever made. This is not the first Pokey song I heard, but this is the song that made me realize that the Pokey chip on the Atari 8-bit was a pretty incredible thing. And I still sing this song to myself all the time. And so I'm going to play it right now because it is probably my favorite Pokey song. Here goes... Jeff, what song was that from? That's from Mule, Steve. Obviously, the theme song to Mule. Yes. I still love that track. Hold on, let's hear a little bit more. I love this part. Oh, yeah. So, so. There you go. That's that's so, my so, favorite. I think supposedly that Roy, like it might have been a little fast, but whatever. it might have been, and they may have been playing it. Well, it depends. Sometimes they get played a little faster because I'm playing sixty hertz or not. But supposedly that was done by Roy Glover. That's, that's what it says. Amazing. The sound was done by on um, the game Atari Mania. Very cool. So, what is your favorite? Uh, my song, favorite pokey song. All right, my favorite is going to be this one right here. Thank you. 
also a little repetitive. I like this. There's more of it. Skip through it a little bit. Now, what song is that from? That is from Ball Blazers, Steve. <laughs> I love it. Now, was that also the 700 Ball Blazer? 700, I think if it's the one cart that used the Pokey, it, used, it made the same music. Yeah. Let me let me look it up. Ready? This is one of the two two games that, that has a Pokey. Sounds good for Luke. Yep. Well, that's the, that's seventy hundred ball blazer. So they really used the um, the uh, the pokey there for that game. They did they did? Let me um um. There's a couple others that come to mind, um, and I found this great um, video that we can share. It's by the channel Nothing Special that doesn't have that many subscribers, but he has the best of Atari eight hundred music number one. And um, let's play a couple of them from some games, for instance. Let's play the Bruce Lee theme. Ready? Yep. Oh, yeah. That's Bruce Lee. Oh, um, yeah. That was great. Then there's a couple others that will be very reminiscent for you. This is one maybe you haven't heard before, but this is a very good game called Draconis. So it's going to reminiscent for me, not you. Part. Oh, yes. Here's one. I'm gonna tell if you can name this this game. Okay. We played it a lot. I don't know. Um, I'll go in a little further. In the clean game. I can't hear you, Jeff. This is up way too loud. For oh, me. don't worry about it. It's um, that's World Karate Championship, or as oh, we would cool. call it, International Karate. Here's the other 7800 game that has ready, mm -hmm. Commander. Got great music. It's got great. This game has great sound. Okay, so what's the last one that you want to share? There's a great game out there called Warhawk. It's a uh, top-down shooter for the Atari bits, and um, I always like this. It's a 
joke. <laughs> Whose video is that joke? That was a Rob Hubbard tune. What was that, Steve? Who? Rob, Rob Whose video is this? Um, this no, is a guy. It's the same song. video. Nothing special channel compiled by Harry, says. And, and, um, and we will put a link to it. 23,000 views. It's actually really good. He has 23,000 views. It's a really good one. He has... The guy has 64 subscribers with this video as it has 23,000 views. So more people need to subscribe. It's got a lot of comments on it too, because it's one of the few that has a nice table yeah. of contents. Obviously the Pokey brings back lots of great memories for us. It's part oh, of, yeah. it's, it's really that nostalgia that for the 8-bit, you know, sticks in the vertical blank, especially the fact that one of the very first programs we wrote actually used it. Yes. Um, you know, to try to make our own views that I think after you heard it, it's probably a good thing we didn't continue. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe if we continued on and did like more, would have got better, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It might, it might've got, it might've got better, but I think it was fun as a document of kids trying to figure out what to do with their computer. I think it sounds really cool. Pretty much. What are you doing with your Atari ST stuff, Jeff? Oh, I'm just finishing up. Finally, I'm finishing up a, my next tutorial, which is a tutorial on using this missing link extension, which makes putting the sprites on the screen loses uh, more memory, but it makes them much faster. My tutorial explains how to use the Visual Studio Code plugin that was created by Neil Halliday, how to install that and use it, how to import a Dagoff file into STOS, and then how to create sprites out of that in stos and then export those sprites import them into the missing link bob creator creates bob's blitter objects the blitter objects aren't used by the blitter they're software sprites that are called pre-rolled they use extra memory but they allow for smooth animation a sprite that's 16 pixels wide it creates a sprite that's actually 32 pixels wide it um, only shows the, the it only 16 shows, pixels that's required only for shows that, the that 16 offset, pixels right? that are needed. you can only position things horizontally every 16 pixels right you can only position them horizontally every 16 pixels then from memory the cpu then skews them over so if you want to put something at position three as the horizontal position the in memory it goes to position one and then the cpu to display it has to skew it over three pixels or two pixels right. so, so instead of doing that you just go directly from memory and display yes you're just displaying things directly from memory it speeds it up immensely but it does that for you so you yeah. don't have and normally stoss would do this sprites. for you but stoss actually um instead of putting them in memory stoss would actually do that offset itself pretty fast but it's still slow and so that's why when you start getting like three sprites on the screen and stoss to start slowing down so what I'm going to do is get, you know, 16 sprites on the way Stoss did. Well, 15. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm adding a, a, a FPS calculator to the screen and show that as you add them, your FPS maybe goes down a little bit, but you're never going to go under 30. Actually, you're never going to go under 45, really. Um, whereas if you put well, that is 15 sprites on a regular Stoss screen, it goes down to like 12. Okay, so that sounds awesome. And then I'm waiting for you to make an actual game out of this. So well, that would be amazing. So I figured out Scramble has been made for all these systems. And I see no Scramble on the ST except for one that it was okay. But I want to make a pixel-perfect arcade version of Scramble. Oh, that sounds cool. Okay. Because it doesn't exist anywhere. Well, that's that's awesome. So that's the end for this episode, Steve. Right now, we're going to play the full remix that Tony Longworth created. Of our found audio of yes. us building, playing with a program we wrote for Atari 100 in 1984 that plays 
hokey music and i'm using air quotes there music exactly. but this is tony longworth's overnight amazing remix he did in almost instantly when i sent, sent it to him he was inspired by it so here goes into the vertical blank into literally the, vertical blank. the song is into the vertical blank into the vertical blank steve exactly into the vertical blank
into the vertical blank. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.